Dune as you've never seen it before. More about this and other stories on This Week in Retro. High resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. If music be the food of love, Super Nintendo. Doom in Tate mode. Color for the cave. And classic print shop in your browser. All this in our community question of the week on This Week in Retro. Up-to-date news for out-of-date tech. Neil, sometimes I get so wrapped up in the week's exciting retro news that I neglect to talk about what's going on in my own retro world. Uh, in case you missed it, last week was Amigathon, uh, our yearly Amiga-centric charity event benefiting Children's Miracle Network Hospitals. Now, Neil, I'm happy to report that thanks to our fantastic team of sponsors and presenters, we managed to raise over $7,000 to help wow. sick kids receive the treatment they need to get better. Uh, if you missed it, don't worry. Uh, we'll be releasing the entire event over the next few weeks over on the Amigos Retro Gaming YouTube channel. Uh, and since you're here, Neil, uh, I'd like to take the opportunity to thank you personally for being a sponsor and donating some awesome prizes for our drawing. My pleasure. My pleasure. It was a wonderful event, and it's just so great to see so much money raised for a good cause through simply doing what you enjoy and people enjoying watching it. It's just fantastic. So roll on Amigathon 2022. Now, into our first story, which was submitted by Rocky1138. Thank you, Rocky. And it's all about this great device called the Super MIDI Pack. That's pack spelt P-A-K. And um, all it is is a cartridge for your Super Nintendo, um, your Super NES that you slot into the top. And on that cartridge are MIDI ports that you plug your music keyboard into. And then... You hit the keys on your keyboard and you can play music using that very, very distinctive um, audio chip in the Super Nintendo. All of those tunes that immediately spring to mind um, when you think of the system, things like The Legend of Zelda and Super Mario World, they all have instruments that are so, so distinctive and they're all yours for the taking. Now, John, you're a Nintendo fanboy. Nice. Uh, do you have some favorite Super Nintendo soundtracks? Uh, absolutely. Uh, there are tons of great music on the Super Nintendo, uh, but without a doubt, my favorite Super Nintendo soundtrack, my, in fact, my favorite soundtrack of all time is uh, the JRPG Chrono Trigger. Uh, to me, this is one of the few examples of, uh, of a video game soundtrack that actually transcends the genre of video game music. And to me, it's just some of the best music uh, from any genre to ever be written. Um, it's not a lie to say that I still listen to it at least probably once a week. And uh, back in the day, I paid big, big dollars uh, to import it from Japan before things like that were easy to do. Mm -hmm. um, uh, amongst my favorites I was always a fan of Pilot Wings it was a really twee soundtrack but mm -hmm. I just thought it worked really well with the game absolutely I love it too yeah yeah um, but I think probably my absolute favorite on the Super Nintendo is probably F-Zero as well probably just because it worked so well with the gameplay it was kind of like the wipeout of its day with that thumping soundtrack and the, and the really intense futuristic racing I really liked that combo now, the Super Nintendo was released a little bit later than the Mega Drive, which gave Nintendo time to look at and take advantage of slightly cheaper RAM prices by the time that, that it came into production. And they'd also seen the competition, so they knew what they wanted to improve on and, and where they could stand out, and audio was one of them. Um, uh, there was the Mega Drive or Genesis, but also the PC Engine was doing the rounds in Japan. 
And um, what Nintendo did was they teamed up with Sony and they teamed up with uh, Ken Kutaragi, a very well-known name from Sony, and they came up with the SSMP sound chip, which, unlike Sega's FM synth-based tech, was a wavetable lookup sound chip. And what that means is that digital samples of instruments are actually stored and played back. So that's where the advantage of cheaper RAM comes into play, because they could actually store that in there, play it back, and... Um, it, different to the fm synth in which you manipulate sine waves um, it has eight channels to work with and on top of that you get lots of filters and things like echo echo is used an awful lot in super nintendo music uh, and it's quite easily implemented so it's no wonder that the super nintendo sounded so good with all of that behind it that of course is not to pour cold water on the mega drive You've only got to fire up something like Streets of Rage to hear how good that sounds. Uh, they're just two very distinctive machines in their own special way. Yeah. So I'm hoping at this point the producer, Duncan, in fact, I'm going to pretend I'm like on a real radio show and like wave to the producer. Duncan, <laughs> play the clip, play the clip. And uh, hopefully he can play the clip, uh, which is on YouTube. If not, there's a link that you can click on in which you can see it in action. And uh, I'll just stop talking now and we'll have a blast of it in action. This is Super MIDI Pack. It turns your SNES into a MIDI synthesizer. It supports sustain, sostenuto, glide, pitch bend, vibrato, and of course, echo controllers. So what this reminds me of quite a lot is a Yamaha MSX computer that I've got here that it came with a music keyboard and it let you tap directly into the FM chip with a MIDI keyboard and I had a lot of fun with that as people who saw my video will know um, although watching me play piano is a bit like watching someone hit a piano with a leg of ham it's it's not the best sight but I think I got the point across uh, for what it was what it was used for <laughs> and uh, it's very similar with this Super Nintendo plug a keyboard in uh, hit the keyboard and have a lot of fun now John you're an actual living breathing musician I've seen you rocking the brass section in the school gym on youtube plenty of videos of you out there <laughs> before the epic sax man there was john um what do you make of this uh, this pack does it give you access to what you'd want to have access to as a nintendo fan and as a music maker oh yeah i mean th this is super super cool um as any musician will tell you that the best instrument you have is is the one that's sat in front of you and being able to essentially turn your games machine into a midi interpreter is something that us console people were ve very jealous of computer owners uh, at the time um there you know we got things like mario paint that had a uh, you know a very primitive sequencer but you were you know now that's not to you know discount all of the awesome things that people continue to do through mario paint uh it's amazing what they what they can do but it is a limited piece of software and this essentially opens up the entire sound chip for you to do whatever you want so it's 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 definitely cool and it brings the the super nintendo more into parity with something like of course the atari st that had the built-in midi ports from the factory 
Yeah, and that's not to say you have to plug a keyboard into this. You could make it part of your whole MIDI chain of instruments and mm how -hmm. you could trigger it from Octomed on an Amiga right, to play right. your Super Nintendo and all I, 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 I sense an upcoming video from you. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you have it. The Super Nintendo lives on as a musical instrument and I would love to see it uh, make an appearance in a pop video perhaps sometimes just to see a Super Nintendo in a modern music video. Someone's got to do it. Come on. Yeah. Um, it also got me thinking of other systems that I'd like to hear work in this way. Uh, quite a few already exist, to be honest. There's the MSX that I mentioned. Commodore 64's SID chip has been hacked into for a long time and enjoyed by musicians. The Mega Drive even has one. Um, I've seen a unit called the Gen MDM, which works in much the same way. A cartridge with a MIDI port that you slot into the top. So it's really not an uncommon thing, but it is very, very welcome to see it happen on the Super Nintendo. And thanks again to Rocky1138 for the story. All links to it are in the show notes. Neil, we waxed nostalgic about all kinds of things on this show. Um, we talked about our first computers. We talked about our first games. But we haven't really touched on the subject of displays before. Now, Neil, is it possible to have nostalgia for a monitor? Hmm. That's a tricky question. Um, CRTs as a whole, yes. Uh, an individual monitor, um, I don't know. I guess I'd love to get the Matsumi TV that I used to have in my bedroom for many, many years as a teenager, just for the nostalgia of the aesthetic rather than any kind of technical reason behind it. You know, uh, I just want to buy back my youth, which is what this hobby is all about. <laughs> we and all do. We yeah, all do. And having that TV to look at would kind of do that. Um yeah, I'd say, but largely because it was the monitor, the monitor that I owned rather than the particular specs of the monitor. Um, what about you? Um, I, I've got to admit, I, I do have some warm, fuzzy memories of the first monitor I had hooked up to my Atari computer. Um, and uh, let me tell you, fuzzy is the operative word here. Uh, it wasn't actually a monitor. It was just an old TV, like an old, old school TV hooked up through an RF modulator attached through those two antenna screws on the back. You know what I'm talking about, Neil. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, to say that the picture wasn't crystal clear was uh, pretty much the understatement of the century. But uh, I, I wish I still had it, just like you, you know, just to look, just to gaze upon it and, and think of the good times. Uh, it was a proper old school TV, had the two big dials on the side, uh, one for VHF and one for UHF frequencies. The, frequ the UHF frequency dial seemed like it had like 600 uh, different positions on that dial. Now, did you ever have a set like that, Neil, or was UHF not a thing in PAL land? Uh, we tuned our TVs, yeah, I'm pretty sure, yeah, into UHF and VHF, um, TVs and radio. Um, mm -hmm. The UK also had cable TV and has done for a long time, but it was predominantly in cities and areas like there's a city called Milton Keynes, which is the so-called city of the future. It's an actual city in the UK that they laid out in blocks like you have in your US cities. Mm -hmm. um, so they experimented with that. And in doing so, they laid all the cables. They had high speed Internet before everyone and all of this stuff and cable TV. But cable TV wasn't really big in this country. Uh, most of us couldn't get it. It wasn't until around 1990 when Sky TV really pushed their satellite TV service. And suddenly we went from four channels to hundreds of channels. Um, and then later analog transmitters were turned off for TV. And um, instead we had digital TV. And that came over the airwaves. So we could still receive uh, HD, well, eventually HD digital TV using our old school aerials that sat on top of our houses. We didn't need a satellite dish for that. Um 
But yeah, we still get analog radio signals, which is a godsend in the car because my car has digital radio and analog radio, but you just lose the digital radio all over the place. Whenever, as soon as you go down into a valley, you know, you don't just lose a bit of the signal, you lose the whole thing on digital. Yeah, that, that's the problem with a digital signal. It's either on or it's off. And exactly. When it's that. off, there, there's nothing there. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, in the UK, I mean, I'm getting wildly off topic here, but in the UK, yes, we did that. We got on board with digital television pretty early on in the early 2000s. Um, I think the UK switched over quite early. And um, yeah, as I say, I'm massively off topic. So let's get back to monitors and nostalgia. So tell me more about this story, John. Okay, well, I'll tell you somebody else who has nostalgia for some old monitors. It's YouTuber LGR. Of course uh, it is. Over, yeah. <laughs> over the years, as you know, he's unboxed and had to go with pretty much every retro monitor in existence, it feels like, uh, from things like a monochrome BM12A, when all of its uh, green screen glory, to a 17-inch ViewSonic that was exactly like the one that came with the PC that was newly installed in each dorm room at Ohio University my freshman year. Uh, Neil, did every dorm room come with a PC at your uni? <laughs> dorm rooms. Dorm rooms are something that happens in American movies. Um, uh. we, most people <laughs> go to uni in the UK, they rent a damp bedsit in a drafty old Victorian house that's probably been split into six student rooms. If uh, You know, if you were lucky, you had carpet on the floor. So <laughs> there was no chance of getting a PC thrown in. No. <laughs> well, LGR is up to more monitor shenanigans here these days. Uh, he's recently reviewed a very cool piece of kit known as the Radius Pivot. Uh, this is something I, I didn't know existed. It's an SVGA CRT monitor from 1991. It has the ability to rotate 90 degrees into full-on portrait mode, and it's made for both Windows 3.1 and MS-DOS. What more do you need? What do you think of this thing, Neil? Nice. So this natively supports MS-DOS then, does it? There's some drivers. Correct, to... correct. That's cool. That's cool. Um, yeah, I love it. A portrait monitor. A portrait monitor wasn't really that unusual at the time um, because it was useful for desktop publishing so in the high-end systems you could get um portrait i don't know how high-end this monitor was in terms of price but um it was a thing but um one that can spin round i really like that it's kind of like an arcade cabinet wearing business socks you know a bit of everything <laughs> I, I i love it i love it yeah 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 now now here's where the story really gets interesting uh towards the end of the video uh clint laments that he wishes he had a particular game to run in vertical mode and you guessed it that game was doom well neil as you know when you're a major youtube star and you make a request sometimes the community jumps into action and makes it happen and that's what happened here uh lgr fan matt phillips took it upon himself to develop a conversion of Doom that runs in Tate mode. And get this, Neil, he's christened it Tomb. That's Tate mode Doom. Love Neil. it. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> How crazy yeah. is that? <laughs> it sounds great. Uh, Tate Tomb. Tomb, yeah. yeah tomb. Portrait Doom would sound a bit like too too much like Dorian Gray. So I think Tomb w works well. Tate Doom. When I first read the thumbnail, when I saw this come up, I thought it was Tate Tate Doom, but um, Tate. <laughs> Is that the name yeah. of the manufacturer? Well, we always Tate. called it Tate Mode until the internet corrected us when we were growing up, Neil. Right. So okay. You're not the only one. <laughs> <laughs> now, here's the million-dollar question. We know that these sorts of conversions are possible, so what classic game would you like to see a Tate Mode conversion of? Oh, well, the obvious choice is any kind of vertical shooter, basically. I'm surprised Clint didn't want Duke Nukem 
to be honest. He went for Doom because I know he's a huge Duke Nukem fan. So maybe that will come next. But um, yeah, vertical shooters, because on our home computers, we were generally restricted to the horizontal aspect. So let's go with a vertical port of Xenon 2. Um, and then maybe as a non-shooter, Rainbow Islands, because that's basically a vertical game, jumping up and up and up. There's no horizontal scrolling. So Rainbow Islands and Xenon 2 for me, please, in Tate mode. Uh, for me, I think... Um, you know, I'm a big pinball fan. I've got an actual pinball machine here uh, in my basement, and uh, I love the pinball games on the Amiga. I mean, they were best in class at the time, and they're still a blast to play today. Uh, I would love to have vertical modes for all of the pinball dreams, pinball fantasies, uh, slam tilt, all of those games. Talk about a dream come true. That would be amazing. Um, I And, you know, for my other choice, maybe, you know, an, an old school racing game would be kind of neat. Something like Virtual Racing uh, would let you see even more of the track and the scenery in front of you. Um, I, I think this would actually make a pretty good community question of the week. So uh, stay tuned for that at the end of the show. And a big thank you to subreddit user Quinmang for sharing this story with us. Neil. We've spoken many a time about how important it is to protect your classic computers by swapping out the old capacitors for new ones. If you want to use the common parlance, we call that recapping. Uh, however, this can be a daunting prospect for those of us, and I include me in this, uh, that aren't incredibly handy with a soldering iron. On your average Amiga board, there's not just you know one or two of these little guys that need swapped out. And each time you bring that iron in for the operation, well, there's, there's always a chance something can go wrong and you can hurt more than you help. Well, for the shaky-handed retro enthusiast, there's a brand new service available from our friends over at RetroRewind.ca. Uh, they now offer a full recapping service for your classic Amiga computer. Whether you have an original 1000, 4000T, or a CD32, Retro Rewind will take care of all of the intricate work involved, and they're using state-of-the-art tools so you can be confident the job will be done to the highest standard. Uh, recapping services start at around 45 bucks, and you can save 10% on this or any order by using the promo code TWIR10 at checkout. Thank you to Retro Rewind for sponsoring this episode, and please, recap your machines. Nice. That's a new service then, because they were doing the recap kits, but now they're actually doing the full-on recap service. In addition to that, they're actually doing full-on custom work on Amiga computers. So if you need any ports replaced, you know, if anything is starting to, to fail on you, uh, they charge a, a very reasonable hourly rate for any custom job that you might need. So uh, all you have to do is contact them, and then they will be happy to help you. Very nice. Very nice. John, I'm going to go into self-promotional mode now, but stick with me because I hope a lot of listeners are going to like this and, and perhaps they'll help me out here in the cave. When this episode goes out, I will have just launched a couple of days ago uh, a new Kickstarter, a new crowdfunder. Um, it's not quite live yet at the time of recording. As soon as we finish, I'm going to go and hit that button. So uh, future me, if you're doing well, well done. If not, get your act together, man. <laughs> and uh, it's only my second ever crowdfunder, so I'm a little bit nervous about it all. But um, what I've created is a glorious, and hopefully Duncan will pop it up on the screen now, retro computer coloring book. It's the coloring book you never knew you always wanted. And uh, it's all for a good cause, even if you're not into coloring books, because all of the profits from this, 
if it's successful, will go into the much-needed museum furniture, security cameras, aircon, and trust me, after the heatwave we've had here, we need aircon here in the cave. Um, all of the essential things that I need to be able to open up this space as a public exhibition. For those of you um, who watch my channel, you'll know that I've been working really, really hard on building this place. We've had DIY episodes every month since December. Um, you'll see the new library space if you're watching the video of this podcast behind me, which is in the latest video. And um, it's been going really, really well, but I do need some help to get it over the finish line and be able to open this up to the public. So that sounds amazing. I mean, I, I can't wait for this thing. Now, how, how can people help? So the Kickstarter is called The Coloring Book of Retro Computers. Um, it's available on as a physical book or also as a digital version. And every physical book will come with the digital one. And, uh, well, the link is in the show notes, basically. That's it. Go and buy a book. And by buying that book, you are directly helping to build this place and um you'll receive my eternal gratitude in helping to do so so thank you to everyone for checking that out so how have you managed to get as far as you have neil i mean how, how have you funded this whole uh cave operation yeah um it's been interesting and, and you'll no doubt have been following because i know you watch the videos and you'll have been thinking that a lot of money has had to go into this um for the furniture and we've tried our best to find ways um around keeping the costs down but when you're opening up to the public you have to make sure that you do things uh, properly really so that people don't come in and get hurt and so that people enjoy the experience i'm very very lucky to have some really dedicated cave dwellers in the form of patrons um, and anyone who watches my videos will have seen some newer sponsors more recently like squarespace um, i did one for some street fighter figurines because i know you all come to my channel to watch street fighter videos <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you'll have been seeing those because i've been really pushing to to, to to get the funds in and i've been using the sponsors to do so so all of that sponsorship money has gone into things like the bookcases behind me so um yeah I, i've been doing everything i can um i can tell you that after my bills every month every penny that comes in through the channel has been going into to building this place so i've been really grateful to everyone for helping um and uh yeah the target to get this place open has always been for the end of september uh, and to achieve that, we really do need an injection of cash. Um, and then what I'm going to do, if the Kickstarter is successful, is I'm going to dedicate a whole month to ordering things in, building the cave and getting it to a finishing point. So there's a really, really big push if um, if you guys can get behind me. And hopefully the pictures you've been seeing on the screen from Duncan have enthused you to either help me or to treat yourself to a colouring book. <laughs> Well, I, I really can't wait to see the cave in, in all of its glory, Neil. Uh, maybe next summer, if things lighten up a little bit, uh, I'll be able to make a return trip to England and check it out in person. That would be amazing. I mean, for you to come over here and record the podcast with me in person, that would be a special episode. We'd get Duncan down for it as well, I think. Absolutely. <laughs> so the coloring book of retro computers. It's about more than just a book. It's about building my dream computer exhibition for everyone to enjoy. Please, if you'd like to help out, pause the show click on the link go and back it but make sure you do come back for john's next story <laughs> neil one of the many advantages early computer users had over us early console users was the ability to do other things than play games on their machines uh, though i have a sneaking suspicion there were a fair amount of computer gamers who uh, shall we say didn't explore every nook and cranny of their machines and just fired up game after game uh, i'm not here to judge neil you do what you do <laughs> but aside from gaming what else did you use your first computer for 
Um, uh, well, programming was what really floated my boat, John. Uh, in the early, early days, I really lacked any kind of mentor who could help me to, to do that. And I was forever frustrated by library books that would have basic code in them, usually for the BBC Micro or the ZX Spectrum. And that just wouldn't work on my Amstrad CPC unless I knew how to manipulate the code to work. So, yeah, but, but even so, the, even though I wanted to program, do you know why I wanted to program, John? No, why? The because, same of the world? <laughs> no, because I wanted to write games. It was oh. <laughs> it was games that infused me. And you, I think we all got to that point with games where we wanted to know the inner workings. And that's how uh, many of us get led into programming games, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I too dabbled with a, a little bit of programming, but it wasn't long before uh, I just got frustrated. And I, and like you said, when you don't have a mentor and you don't have somebody to actually sort of help you, unless you're incredibly gifted, it's it's difficult to bridge that gap between you know writing four next statements and <laughs> producing something that actually is is worth playing. Um, the vast majority of my computer time was uh, just firing up you know another game of pole position or whatever, but. Uh, the first time I really got interested in using a computer for something other than gaming was in elementary school. Um, we were having some kind of party, and uh, one of the students brought in this giant banner that was printed on that old school tractor feed paper, you know, the kind where all the pages are connected. Um, and, and all the text was in these crazy fonts. I think maybe every letter was in a different font because that's just <laughs> what you did when you had the power. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there were bitmap pictures of dogs. There was a rainbow, a boxer, all kinds of things. And, you know, this absolutely floored me because I had no idea you could do this kind of thing with a computer. Um, of course, this was Print Shop. Uh, print Shop was the face that launched a thousand ships in terms of home graphic design and, and shall we say, uh, desktop publishing. Um, Neil, what were your first memories of Print Shop? Well, John, I mean, I don't know if this is going to shock you as much as the time you told me that you'd never played Quake. I didn't have Print Shop. <gasps> <laughs> I was though I was fascinated by the the WYSIWYG word processors and the desktop publishing packages in in the early 90s in particular because my Amstrad CPC wasn't capable of that kind of stuff but once mm. I got into Amigas and PCs it was so uh, well, actually, probably starting with something like the Acorn, Acorn Archimedes at school and then uh, Wordsworth on my Amiga as, as a word processor. Um, and then Ami Pro. I was a massive fan of Ami Pro on the PC way before Microsoft Office dominated. That's what I did a lot of my schoolwork on. And if I wanted to get really fancy, maybe Claris Works. I don't know mm -hmm. if you ever used that. That was a, oh, a whole sure. office package. That actually dates back to the mid-80s on the on the Apple, but it wasn't until Windows 3.1 that I got on board with that. Um, and then if I was doing banners or something, probably Coral Draw. Um, mm. Really enjoyed that. So, yeah, Clarice Works, Ami Pro, Coral Draw. That had all of my bases covered. I didn't have that tractor printer. I had a Canon bubble jet, so a BJ-10, the little portable printer. Uh, that everyone liked to get with their laptops. I had one of those, but that was just black and white. So um, was I missing out, John, by not having print shop in my life? Um, well, I mean, sort of. 
print shop, you know, stuff that came out of print shop, it always kind of had a certain look in my in my mind that, you know, where it's it, it's sort of like the um, the nostalgia you feel when you look at a piece of pixel art. You know, all of the all of the included artwork, I guess we'd call it clip art now, was decidedly low res. And because it was so often printed out, you know, on the tractor feed paper, all of that stuff is kind of intertwined. So uh, it's not so much the, the print shop, the, the application, but just the results. Yeah, I think you probably were missing out, Neil. You should have chucked all that stuff, got an Apple II and did it the right way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the clip but, art's um, a funny one. It always fascinated me what clip art they chose to include in these packages. I remember... I think it was Microsoft Works. There was a bit of clip art called "Man with Too Many Hats," <laughs> and it's like, well, when, when am I going to use this picture of a man with like ten hats on his head? <laughs> That's great. I love it. I love it. Well, you know, in, in in my household, even though print shop did appear on the Atari 8-bit computers, uh, we didn't have a printer that could use it. Uh, here at the Schaller household, we had a plotter. Uh, do you know what that is, Neil? It's it's I well, do. it's I like do. a printer. Yeah, instead of a ribbon or a toner, as you know, it uses basically tiny ballpoint pens to draw an image on paper. I'm telling you right now, that sounds much cooler than it actually was, though, because <laughs> the paper on this thing was tiny. Uh, I think it was about four inches wide, and it came on a roll, just like adding machine paper, receipt paper, or something like that. Uh, I imagine it was sort of a low-cost solution for people who just wanted to see something on the screen come out in a physical form. Yeah, yeah. I've got a similar plotter for the Commodore 64. Very small printer, and it looks like it's got four like felt-tip pens that you mount in there. Uh, mm, I've never actually yeah. tried it, um, but if you want to see a really cheap printer you need to go and look up the zx spectrum with its little silvery roll of basically receipt paper i think it's a thermal printer so there's no pens mm. or anything like that oh that's that is a cheap printer but yes carry on john <laughs> carry on <laughs> i can't imagine anything i had to do with the zx spectrum would have been done on that boggles the mind <laughs> well the printer can't um, cost more than the computer surely <laughs> <laughs> Now, we also had a quote-unquote letter quality printer at my house, which was basically the same sort of daisy wheel getup you'd see on an electric typewriter. So it was great for printing out, you know, papers for school and things like that, but it couldn't do graphics at all unless you were doing some sort of weird ASCII stuff. Um, so I was out of luck in terms of being able to print anything cool for the longest time. But... That time has passed, Neil. Now we live in the future. Thanks to subreddit user and Patreon supporter Diller76, I've been playing around with some classic print shop nonstop in my browser. Now, Neil, surely you need some signage for the new cave. <laughs> is it time to make it retro authentic with this thing? Wow, Diller is about to open my eyes to print shop. I'm going to give this a go. Um, <laughs> what I will say is it's all very well glamorizing dot matrix printers, but i remember uh, what i remember about them is just how damn loud they were um yeah oh yeah <laughs> they were so loud that when i supported them in a payroll department each individual dot matrix had a plinth that they sat on with a soundproof box that went over the top of it and um even with that you could still hear them chundering away in the room next door so uh, i'm not sad to see the back of them i know they still have a place because of their nature being an impact printer other printers can't uh, replace that if you want duplicates or something like that mm -hmm. um but uh yeah i i can't say i miss them massively um when it comes to nostalgia i think dot matrix print printers might just be where i draw the line 
Yeah. Well, everybody's got that line somewhere, and that's not a bad place to draw. Because like you said, they were incredibly loud. Uh, I was just reading a write-up of uh, Atari printers in an old issue of Antique Magazine, and one of the things that they, they rated on is how good the little soundproof hat each one of them came with. <laughs> it's silencing those things because they were just, they were just a din. the din was incredible. Just 100 so, decibels. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> So if you want to print out some invitations, some cards, or some banners of your own with the original home desktop publishing program, and you're tired of shelling out megabucks for that Adobe Creative Cloud subscription, just head on over to theprintshop.club and be sure to share your creations with us right here in the comments. So John, just before we go into the community question of the week, we talked about the Super Mario $1.5 million auction. Um, there were some oh, good yes. conversations about it on our subreddit. And I think one person pointed out that one of the reasons that it went for so much money is I think it was the f on the first run of cartridges. So they identified mm. it was not only a sealed cartridge, it was an early cartridge, which we, we didn't mention in the story. So that adds a little bit of weight to its value, but uh, I'm still not convinced it's worth $1.5 million. <laughs> Yeah, o only time will tell when we see the third or the fourth sealed copy appear yeah. to, to really ascertain what the what the value of these things are. But that's a, that's a good point. Thank you to our subreddit community for uh, keeping us honest with that. So let's move on to our community question of the week, Neil. Uh, last week's community question was, would you consider investing in specific video games as part of your retirement fund? And we got some great responses here. We'll start things off with ProTech438. He says, funny that this question would come up now, as earlier this week I was watching the video of Spawn Wave about how retro game prices are getting out of control and he used a couple of GameCube titles as an example. That prompted me to check out the local marketplace sites for Star Wars Rogue Squadron 2 Rogue Leader. This was one title that I missed back when I was actively playing on my GameCube. I remember it having gotten good reviews, and I thought it might be better to get before the prices get high. I managed to get one for a reasonable price. I don't know if it'll be the nest egg of my retirement plan, but it'll be fun to try it out. And I think that uh, ProTech, you, you have a good point. If you are on the fence about securing anything from your youth in the terms in terms of video games, uh, this may be the time to snap it up, particularly if it's on the newer side, like GameCube games, original Xbox, stuff like that, because I have a feeling that that stuff is going to be the next sort of wave to really hit a huge price spike. Yeah, I, I don't know what the rest of the answers will be today, but 90% of the conversations we have, if not higher, with regards to game prices, it's always on the console side of things and not on the microcomputer side of things. It's the Nintendos, it's the Segas. And um, in the past, you know, with the N64, you might have said, well, the cartridges are a bit more resilient. But when you get mm -hmm. onto GameCube and later systems on CD, you've got to factor in bit rot on the CDs. Um, you know, I, I know cartridges aren't indestructible, but they will certainly last longer than this other media. So there's a lot oh, of sure. things to factor in, yeah. Not to mention the fact that CDs are just so much more fragile in terms of scratches and, and things like that than cartridges are. I mean, you can bury a cartridge out in your yard for a couple of years and you know and, and uncover it, and it'll probably still work. Uh, discs, just by their nature, I mean, they're just so you can you can scratch one accidentally, and that's the end. So, yeah. um, I don't know if that's going to have an impact on on game prices or not, but I know for a lot of collectors that I know personally, disc-based systems are sort of where they draw the line, just because of those those factors. Yeah. Yeah. And the other point I'll just raise quickly is that we are very definitely coming into the last generation of consoles that actually come with games on media. So as we move away from that, 
and uh, physical games become consigned to the history books will that boost their value as well you know when we get to a point where everybody knows that there will be no more physical games ever again is that going to boost their value good point good yeah. point uh pajaco 6502 says honestly no uh because i'm expecting the bottom to drop out of the market at some point looking before i retire also i do wonder exactly how long before all this old kit starts failing beyond repair uh, the market for Elvis memorabilia collapsed because all of the collectors were dying off from old age and no one else wanted it. So that's that's also another good point. It is a good point. And unlike things that have been traditionally valuable that people have been nostalgic about, like model train sets, there's mm -hmm. nothing to stop you from still playing those games through emulation or, or however you want to access those games or streaming online. Whereas in the past, you had to actually hunt down that train set or that particular train and physically get hold of it to play it. So that might factor into it as well. Yeah, yeah. And finally, subreddit user do communication 855 I think, uh, summarizes the viewpoint of quite a few of us out there. He says, no, I don't think so. For me, this is about enjoyment and fun. The minute it becomes about money, the fun for me is lost. As an example, Toy collecting has in some parts become a real toxic culture due to people with vested interests in maintaining and increasing the value of the toys they hold. There are considered right and wrong ways to collect and restoration even starts to be frowned upon. I just want it to stay a fun, enjoyable and supportive culture as it currently is. Money can wreck that. IMHO. I agree. And um, despite all of these big headline prices, one and a half million dollars and all that, there is still a huge amount of enjoyment to be found today in game collecting. Just be careful about what you want to choose to collect. So, for example, I'm currently trying to collect Mastertronic budget titles for 8-bit micros. You can pick them up for 50p, a pound, two pound on eBay all day long. Now, granted, there's 200 or so to collect for the system I'm collecting for, but it's perfectly achievable over a period of a couple of years, just a game here and a game there and ticking off my Excel spreadsheet to see what I've collected. And eventually I'll get there and I'll have the whole collection. So there is still a lot of fun to be had in game collecting. It's, we're not being priced out yet. This week's community question of the week is what classic game would you like to see in Tate mode or Tate mode if you're old school? <laughs> Please post your responses in the subreddit and we'll read the top three most upvoted responses on the air next week. And before we go, just a quick announcement to say that uh, we're away next week, so there'll be no show next week. We'll have a gap, but then we'll be back in full force the following week. So make sure you get lots of stories into our subreddit so we've got some stories to come back to. This Week in Retro was presented by Neil from RMC and John Shawler. It was produced by me, Duncan Stiles. The podcast version of the show is available through your favorite podcaster, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And the video version is available on the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. Join our community subreddit at r slash This Week in Retro to suggest and vote on stories we cover on the show. If you watch This Week in Retro on YouTube, please give us a like and subscribe to help us reach new viewers. If you'd like to support the show, please check out the links to our Patreon and Coffee pages in the show notes or in the YouTube description. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.